0: Ushers, come on down. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here and a good morning to you. We'll share in our offering and thank you for giving. Uh, everything that happens, happens because that uh, you give and we give together. So thank you for that. I'll highlight a couple of things for you just real quickly. As you know, already we're collecting our boxes and now's the time. If you brought took a box and forgot it, go back home and get it today. You have to the end of uh, actually tomorrow morning, early, late as you can bring it. But make sure you get those in because they are packing the truck up first thing in the morning so they can deliver those. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for, for being a part of it. I want to thank you as well for your giving with our gift cards. Uh, I just want to tell you that right now we're looking at about $13,000 worth of money for gift cards, $13,000 worth of gift cards that will be, are being purchased right now. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll be going to multiple schools throughout the area to help families uh, in need be able to have Christmas for their kids. Thank you for doing that. And what really quite hits me, and I want to just say this to you, You know, we we announce it, we talk about it, we ask you to participate in it, but it's not like we have a big drive where we have you march up front and give you a gift for that. Uh, Simply a big Christmas mailbox out there. We ask you to do it, and you do. And thank you for that. That's a profound impact. Uh, not only to those families' lives, but even to the school officials that know that we do this without any strings attached. And so thank you. That's a great amount. And my thanks for each one that that has participated in that and, and uh, giving along the way. I want to remind you just in two weeks, December 3rd, two weeks, I want to remind you that Michael Ferris is going to be back. And for some of you who are going, Michael Ferris, Michael Ferris, the potter, uh, the poor guy that that probably doesn't even have a name, everyone knows him as the potter, but the potter will be back uh, in in, uh, two weeks, December 3rd, Um, he'll have the whole service time on those days, Um, and there's three services, of course, our Sunday morning services, a reminder he's not bringing back the pottery wheel and doing that again, Um, but he has a a message he brings and a talk he gives that ties right into the pains and the hurts of life, and so you're going to want to be here for that invite someone if you invited someone for the first time haven't come back to hear him again but excited about that he'll be be, he'll he'll be here in just two weeks Uh, and uh, we're hopefully that you can you'll be a part of that day but also bring someone with you I just want to remind you, uh, we, of course, we are in three services now, specifically for this service time. Uh, you know, I can tell this in the early morning service. They're never going later. But just a reminder, as we continue to fill up the spaces, uh, this is usually the prime time service. And if you are uh, ever considering you know, moving to that later time, it does help along the way. Uh, I, I don't bother telling the 8 o'clock folks. The bottom line is they don't even know there's two other services in the church. So we'll just let them be to themselves. But help us along the way, if you would, with that. This morning here we are in Thanksgiving week. Every year it seems like it's here and I go, man, when did this get here? <clears> that the year has flown by and here we are now in Thanksgiving, one of the purest of holidays that our country participates in. You know, there's none of the hype of anything else. It's just Thanksgiving. And of course, Thanksgiving is the gateway to Christmas, and Christmas, of course, coming up next. In our house growing up as kids, and then even with our with our uh, as kids, and then with children, uh, Thanksgiving Day, uh, Macy's Christmas you know, Thanksgiving Day parade is on the television. As I grew up as a kid, that was required. Mom would be cooking, and uh, everyone stopped what they were doing to go watch when Santa Claus finally arrived at Harold Square at the front door of Macy's, because that was the official start of Christmas. Uh, even in and when Dinah being married, every year, for, for up until my mom passed away two years ago, every year at noon or a few minutes after when Santa Claus would arrive, I would check in, call my mom, wherever she would be at, and say, he's here, it now starts. And just so you know, that's the start of Christmas, not before, Okay? You know, some of you start Christmas at Halloween. No, that's not Christmas. Um, you know, Christmas shows—I refuse to watch them. There, they're on. You know, they're on for weeks. They've been on. No Christmas music. Don't you dare be playing Christmas music until noon on Thanksgiving Day. And by the way, no Christmas decorations till noon on Friday on, on Thursday. Now, I say that my house is completely decorated. <laughs> Everything's up. Diane goes into the mode, you know, the Christmas music is on, you know, Google, play Christmas music, Google, stop, you know, we have that war, poor Google doesn't know who to go with, so she always goes with my wife, I don't know why, and then, and then, of course, it's all up, so then I put my foot down a couple of years ago, and I said, okay, you can do it early, but the lights are not coming on, not one Christmas light's coming on until noon on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> They're all lit. <laughs> everything's lit up, but that's when it's supposed to start, just so you know. This morning, as we head into Thanksgiving and then into Christmas, I want to talk about one of the most elusive things that you can ever grab a hold of, and yet when you grab a hold of it, it will radically change you, and that is the idea of contentment. I want to talk this morning about contentment, finding contentment. How do you get a hold of it? How How do you grab hold of contentment in such a way that changes your life? Right now in our church, we have a Financial Peace University class going on. You're too late to join it now. Uh, You can join the next one, but through the years, we've had FPU, we've had financial classes, counseling of couples. I can tell you right now, I have counseled hundreds of people, singles and couples, on money issues, financial issues. I have counseled for years. And we've walked through saving money, and we can teach you how to save, we can teach you how to budget, we can show you how to get out of debt, how to do tithing, how to give giving, how to invest properly. I mean, we can do all of that, but quite 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 clearly, of all of those things, by far, the hardest thing for anyone to grab a hold of is at the root of the whole issue, and it is contentment. I can show you how to save, I can show you how to budget, I can do all that for you, but at the core is this issue of contentment. It is by far the hardest issue to conquer. Not to mention that this issue is at the heart of virtually every battle we have within ourselves, this issue of contentment. Let me immediately make an opening statement that you need to hear and understand, and that is this. Contentment, just so you know, is an attitude that must be learned Just so you know, contentment is something that has to be learned. Contentment is not natural. Contentment does not come naturally. Contentment does not come accidentally. You don't fall into contentment. It must be learned. Contentment is an attitude that has to be cultivated and as well learned along the way. And I will say this, learned and relearned. Because it is not something typically that you grab a hold of and once you got it, it's like, oh, I'm all done. And I'll tell you why about that in just a few moments. This is a hard attitude to learn. I would, I would suggest to you a very hard attitude to learn because, quite honestly, the entire world, entire culture in which we live works against that attitude. The entire culture works against contentment. I should qualify that. It doesn't work against contentment. Here's how the culture works. It has been one of the hardest attitudes for people to learn because we live in a culture where the culture, the marketing world, and the culture around us continues to tell us that contentment is really good. It's really good to have. And you can have contentment if you have whatever it is they're selling. That's the problem is that constantly we are bombarded with pictures and a, and a subtle picture, even though the words aren't stated, a subtle picture that says you can have contentment if... And then they begin to paint pictures for us that show pictures of people in very contented lives and they never show pictures of very contented lives in people in third world countries. They show pictures of contented people who have all the stuff And so the hidden message there is you can have contentment, but it's based upon gaining, grabbing hold of whatever it may be, the stuff of life. It is one of the hardest things to learn. I'll tell you right now, it's one of the hardest attitudes that Diane and I have ever had to learn in our lives together. Once you learn it, you have these glimpses and getting a hold of it, it just change your life. But I'll tell you right now, as Diane and I were young growing up in marriage, it was one of the hardest things to learn. And there is one way to learn it. There is, without question, one quick way to learn it, so to speak. I'll take the word back, learning. There is one way to get contentment very, very, very quickly, but I do not recommend it. In fact, what's interesting, I don't recommend it, but the fact of it is, you really can't control this anyway. And that is this, one of the quickest ways that you can land yourself in in the middle of contentment or the belief that you, will, you are or could be content would be when tragedy hits and for something that happens in your life that completely turns your life upside down. When you got a spouse who's gonna walk out on you, who is unfaithful to you. I mean, when you have a, lose a spouse, a husband or wife through death, or you're on the verge of a very ugly divorce, and we say things like this, oh God, if you'd restore this marriage, or when that spouse is sick and you go, Lord, man, if you, if, you save, if you save him, you keep him alive, keep her alive, none of this stuff matters. One of the most powerful things, if anyone who knows us who lost a child, if you've ever had a child be sick and going through a terminal illness, something like that, or having that worry, and the many times that we have prayed, oh, Lord, I'll give you anything, Right? Oftentimes, we are faced with things in our lives where we find ourselves, it's so dark, it's so dire that we will say, God, if you would just save this marriage, if you would just save this child, if you would just save this spouse, if you would just do this, God, nothing else matters to me. All of a sudden, contentment, it looks very very approachable because we give this equation to God. So listen, if you do this, I will be content with nothing. The problem is it doesn't last because because the issue is here is that it's not learned, it's been forced upon you, and what's been forced upon you is a different lifestyle, perhaps, or the dream of a lifestyle, but the heart has still not been convinced. So contentment is a tough one, and we, I think we all understand that's the battle. So this morning, this, on Thanksgiving week, we're coming into what is the biggest materialistic time in our year, which is Christmas. Let's talk about learning to be content. Look at this first passage from the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, So I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, these are actually some pretty powerful personal words from the Apostle Paul. Words that are coming from his heart because he says for point blank, I've learned this. The Apostle Paul had to learn this as well. It wasn't intuitive to him. It didn't come naturally. He had to learn it. And he says, I've learned the secret. So my feeling is, let's just stop talking about the secret. Let's get the secret out there in the open. So this morning, I want to give you five points, five steps, if you will, that are no secret, things that you can apply. Because you see, contentment is something, as we said already, that must be learned and relearned. It's a learned behavior. It's not a personality trait. Don't fool yourself by saying, well, some people are just more naturally content than others. Nope, not it. It's a learned trait. So this morning, I want to explore five keys to personal contentment. And I'll tell you right up front, I'm going to give you five steps right from the Bible, things that you can apply and you can use, regularly starting right now. But here's the deal, your choice. Some of you can take them and use them and apply them and will. Others of you will not. And that's okay. That's your choice. But they can change your life very, very sincerely. They can set you free or keep you in bondage. That's always your call. we have said this over and over again. Just a reminder, God does not strong arm anyone. He'll give you the truth. Your choice, what you do with it. Let's talk about a couple steps along the way. Let's reveal the secrets. Secret number one is this. You've got to learn the, a, new meaning of, a new meaning of the word contentment. It's time to get a new definition. It's time to get a new understanding of what this idea of contentment means. You see, for some of you, you have this picture that contentment means Lazy. That contentment means, and some of you who are exceptionally driven people, contentment has the picture of laziness. Contentment seems like you're settling, settling for less, you have no drive, you don't care about things, the, the lack of ambition. Uh, for many of you, contentment seems like this. It means to be satisfied with mediocrity. I would immediately say to you, that's not, that is not at all contentment. None of those things define contentment. Remember who wrote these words? The person who wrote these words about being content with nothing or ever, with everything or nothing, the person who wrote these words is one of the most driven people you'll ever find in all of history, and specifically biblical history, and that's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was incredibly driven. He did not settle. He did not settle for less. He, he was not mediocre in any way. By the way, this is the guy, the Apostle Paul, who said this. Just so you know, I run the race. He said, I want you to run the race. And run the race like you can win. And if you're going to do that, you're going to train yourself, he said. You're going to press in and you're going to work. He said, I consider myself uh, as as one who is able to win this race and I'm going to do it by hard training. Driven, Paul said. I'm going to press on, he said. I'm going to press on towards the goal of the prize of Jesus Christ. That's a driven person. In fact, it's this guy who said this. You can knock me down, but you can't knock me out. Along the way, you're going to get knocked down. Along the way, I get knocked down, but I'm getting right back up and I'm back in this game. So if you think that, that contentment has this picture of laid back or mediocre, you could not be more wrong. And by the way, the Apostle Paul was writing these words while he's in prison. I mean, he's writing these words while he has nothing. And he says, I've learned to be content." So let's start, start by beginning to paint a picture of contentment. Because the first step, if you want to win in this battle, you've got to get a good definition, a good picture, if you will, of what contentment is. Contentment is being able to build a great career without losing your family along the way. Uh, contentment is the ability to go accomplish great goals without ruining your health along the way. It's to gain the whole world without losing your soul or selling out your soul. Contentment means owning stuff without the stuff owning you. It means you can have it and you're thrilled and you cannot have it and you're equally as thrilled. Contentment. Contentment means that you drive toward the future without sacrificing your marriage or your family or your faith or your morals or any of the other things that often are sacrificed and still go for your future. Contentment is trusting God for more than you could ever ask or think or imagine. Ephesians chapter three, verse 20 says this, with God's power working in us, God can do much, much more than anything that we can ask or imagine. See, contentment is trusting God to do the more. Contentment does not mean that somehow you get less. Less. Now, it does mean that you're not pursuing the more all the time. But contentment does not mean that somehow you're on the losing end of the stuff spectrum. It doesn't mean you get less. It means that you let God worry about the more. Make sure you hear that. Having a heart of contentment doesn't mean that you get less. It means you, worry, you let God worry about the more. You don't. You don't have to worry about it. Do you realize that you basically have three ways in which you live? So I'm going to summarize our, our whole lives together. People in general basically have three choices as to how they are going to live their life. I'll give you the three statements. You can live your life giving up, gearing up, or looking up. One of those three. For the most part, when it comes to how you're going to live your life, those are the three choices you have. First one, a give up attitude. That would be many of us. We have an attitude that we look at life and says, you know what? It's no use. I'm constantly working. I can't win the battle. And even though you keep going, you keep doing it. You keep doing it with a defeated heart. It's that giving up kind of attitude, which simply says, you know what? You just can't win this battle. I'm just going to get through it. just going to survive. And that's how you approach life. You know what? It's uh, Friday. Yay. Got the weekend. Sunday night. Back to Monday. I just got to get through. I just got to get to Friday. And you have that giving up attitude along the way. That's one choice. A second choice you have is the gearing up attitude, and that would also be many of us. The gear up attitude is this. I got this. I got to get a plan. I got to get an action plan. I got to go get it. I got to work hard. I, I, I got to go, get up and get going on the day. I got it. Gear up. Um, if you look at the books that you read, if you look at the blogs that you pay attention to or the videos that you watch... If, there, if your ebook list is entitled How to Be a Millionaire or Eager for the Next Empire, you're probably in trouble, just so you know. <laughs> and yet, there's a lot of people, a lot of younger generations that are gearing up. What do I have to do to go be successful? What do I have to do to get there? All those kind of pieces. You're gearing up for something that you just have to have. You're gearing up for something that the culture has persuaded you. That's the ticket, and that's the answer. And I would say trouble. You see, when you live a life that's always geared up, I mean, you're killing yourself spiritually, typically. And sometimes even physically end up running yourself to the ground. But that's the gear up. And here's the other problem with gearing up. The problem, once you gear up, you spend the rest of your life geared up. And that's a radical change. Because if your approach is gearing up for whatever's next, the problem is what? There's always something next. You always got to gear up for the next thing. But let's talk about the third one real quickly. Or you can have the approach, I'm just going to look up. And what that means is I'm just going to trust God to be who he said he would be in my life. Some of you are already ready to give up. You're tired of being running out of energy. Others of you are always on that edge of gearing up, getting ready for the next thing. I got it. And maybe you can do an awful lot. And I would say I've seen some pretty driven people. And people can get a lot done in the course of a few years. And so you can get a lot done in a few years. But there's so much more that you can get done with him as opposed to just you. And God is the one who has the answer to the more. This is actually, there's actually so much more that God wants to do for you that you can't even possibly see or dream or imagine. So much to do in your life. Maybe you personally can get a lot done. I don't I'm a fairly driven guy. I know what I can accomplish. I know what I can get done. You know, if there's a project and you're having a problem, if I, if I can help you, I'm gonna go get it done. In fact, I pride myself on that. I can't, You can't be done. I got it. Many of you are like that. But there comes a point in time where I've had in my life I had to stop and say, you know, I can get a lot done. But, God, there's much more, so much more you can do and want to do beyond what I can possibly imagine. Step number one, you've got to get a new definition of contentment. And it's not mediocrity. It's not settling back. Let me give you a second tip along the way, second secret to reveal. And that is that contentment does have an enemy. And you have to face that enemy and conquer it. Second step is you have to face the enemy of contentment and you have to deal with it in your life. Contentment does have public enemy number one. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter six, verse four. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you have been given and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. The arch enemy of contentment is comparison, just so you know. Comparison. When you compare yourself to others, it's not, it, it, it not only a, a, a matter of time in your life that will occupy time and energy, it will suck you of joy. Comparison to other people will suck you of contentment. And we all know how this goes. We know it so, so well. So you get a new car. Maybe it's not even a brand new car, but new to you. But say brand new car. You get a brand new car, and you get in that car, and you go, I love this car. And again, you, you love the smell, that whole chemical deal. You love that smell. I love this car. I love this car. It just smells like a new car. And every day you get in that car, you love it. You just love your car. I love this car. I love this car. And this goes on for some time because it's still your car. Now, granted, it's not brand new, but it's still your car. And you oh, I love my car. And then your neighbor gets the exact same car that you have. He, your neighbor gets a brand new car. You know, two years, two years later, three years later, and the neighbor says, "Hey, you gotta come over, and we had the same car. You gotta come over and see the new car." And so you do because that's what we do. You hey, see your car, and you step into the car, and you're sitting in the exact same car you have only two or three years you know, newer. The bells and whistles and the smell, and you and you're happy for ah, oh, that's a great car. The problem isn't right then. in his car, the problem is when you get back in your car and you sit down in your car and you go, "Oh, I hate this piece of junk." Yeah. What? <laughs> what happened? You know, you like your car, love your car, and all of a sudden, this car is just, you know, oh, this piece of junk. That's how it goes. Comparison. It takes the joy and the contentment right out of your life. Some of you might remember this story I told years and years ago when my kids were young, but you might remember it, but it gets to the key point here. So when my children were young, my one daughter was outside playing with friends down the street. And she came in. I was in the, in our, in the uh, little den area. Of, uh, uh, the dining room was the den at that point. And I was working on something. And she comes in and she goes, Daddy, can I have a nickel? And it's like, absolutely. You know, I can give her a nickel. And she's, she's oh, thank you. You know, she's, thank you for the nickel. When she's little and gets in her little hand. She runs outside. She's happy. And she's not there for a while. So she comes back in pretty soon and says, Daddy, can I have two nickels? And, and it's like, sure, I, I, just, I, w- I just wish had someone had told me that that was just a, a, a precursor to what was to come the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, something's different between nickels and $50 bills. I, I don't know how, I don't know when that happened, but it changes. And it was like, absolutely, have another nickel, you know, and off she goes, and she's just happy. She's got, ah, I got two nickels, and she's getting it, and she plays. And pretty soon she comes back, and she goes, Daddy, can I have a quarter. Yeah, sure, have a quarter. Yeah, great. Give a quarter. Off she goes again. And that's long as you can I have another quarter? Okay, so now I'm going, oh, hold on. So I go, well, where's your other where's your quarter? And she, it's right there. And embedded in her, her little sweaty hand, two nickels and a quarter. It's all there. Because I, I thought, did you lose it? No, no, I got it. I said, well, then why do you want another quarter? Because her friend, when her friend came to play, guess what her friend had? Had a nickel. And then she got a nickel. And then the friend wandered home, came back, and now the friend had two nickels. And now she needed a second nickel. And the friend went down and got a quarter. Now she had to have a quarter. You get the picture, right? Now, here's the picture I need you to get. When I gave her that nickel and every nickel or quarter along the way, she sat there and was just thrilled. She was so pleased and content with what her father had given her. Are you content with what your father has given you? You see, the problem didn't happen until she went outside and said, look what I got, let's compare. And once the comparison started, all downhill from there. I mean, that's our lives. The point is she was so content till she compared it to what other people had. Are you content with what your Father has given you? Because you see, comparing kills contentment. Friends, the danger of 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 comparison, just so you know, the danger of comparison is this. It forces you to let other people determine your happiness and your joy. Comparison forces upon you the fact that you can only be happy and have joy and contentment based on them and not what God has given you. Now, Jesus knows that we like to compare. We like to look at things and do the comparisons. So at one point, he even says to the disciples this, and all that he was teaching, he said, listen, you want to compare, now I'm I'm paraphrasing, I got it. You want to compare yourself. Why don't you look at the birds? He didn't say go look at your neighbor. He said, why don't you go look at the birds? And I just want you to look at those birds, these tiny little birds that are worth nothing, and I want you to see how well I care for them. And then he says, and by the way, I love you more than the birds. You want to compare yourself, go compare yourself to them. I love you more. He says, look at, the, look at the, uh, the fields and how I decorate them with flowers. Take a good look at a flower in our beautiful state. Look at the gorgeous scenery of our state. And he says, look at that, compare yourself to that. And just so you know, I make things that beautiful and I don't even care anything about those things compared to how much I love you. Compare yourself to the right things. If you're going to compare, compare yourself to the right things. Question is this I have for you. You ever see a bird taking uh, ulcer medicine? You ever see a flower in counseling? (laughs) Yeah, there's something to be said about comparing ourselves to the right thing. Let's be honest. So much of our contentment is solely based upon what we see in the lives of others. And here's how it goes. We're content as long as we look at other people and they're not getting something better than we got. As long as they don't have something more than we have. Well, then I'm content. But the second I feel slighted, now I'm upset. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God had said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do you hear that? God says this, here's the deal. I'll give you me and I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. I will care for your every need. So be content in me. That's the deal. Let me real quickly give you two stories, two biblical stories. Neither one I'm crazy about, the one I really hate. So I'll explain it to you in a minute. They're both stories that Jesus shared with his disciples or that happened in the life of Jesus, I say, with his disciples. One's in Matthew 19, then the other one is right into the next, very beginning of the next chapter, Matthew 20, because they kind of piggyback off each other. So here's the deal. Jesus is out preaching. I'm not going to read them for you because of the length of time. But Jesus is out. He's preaching. He's teaching. And along the way, this rich guy comes. But no one knows that he's really rich at that point. I mean, we don't have that as a defining factor of him. But he's a religious guy. He, we would picture him to be a young religious leader. Uh, and so he was a very spiritual guy. He's got it all together. And yet he's listening to Jesus teach and he's realizing that though he's a religious guy, faithful his church attendance, knows all the books of the Bible. You know, he's got to memorize. He knows all the rules, if you will. Something's still missing in his life based on what he hears from Jesus. So he goes up to Jesus. Excuse me, teacher, I got a question for you. What, what do I have to do to get eternal life? What do I have to do here to get e- eternity? And it's, it's a good question, a legitimate question. It might be a loaded question. Maybe he's just looking for some affirmation because he's a pretty religious guy. But he goes, But what do I have to do? Uh, Jesus is pretty straightforward to him. And he said, Well, keep the commandments. The guy's immediate comeback is Well, which ones? Now, there's two sides to that. One is a legitimate question because if you know anything about the history of that day, the religious leaders of the day didn't just have 10 commandments, they had hundreds, hundreds of rules they had to follow. So when Jesus says, keep the commandments, keep the laws, if you will, and they weren't just rules back then, they were considered laws, keep the laws, legitimate question would be, well, which ones? I mean, there's hundreds of them, anything specific. So that's a legitimate question. Here's the other piece. This is is exactly where we live. Which ones? Meaning, I don't want to waste my energy on stuff that I don't need to waste my energy on. Just give me, is there something specifically I should be doing here? And Jesus, without missing a beat, gives him an answer very quickly. He says, oh, sure. I mean, I, I like this. He doesn't say to the guy, well, what's wrong with you? Why do you need to be clarified? The guy goes, which ones? And Jesus, "What's well, a good answer. So here you go. No murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Make sure you honor your father and mother. And by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. There's so many more he could have done. Now, the first question I ask when I read the story is I go, why those? Why did Jesus pick those? If you ever hear a sermon when someone describes why Jesus chose those, they don't know what you're talking about. Because we don't know why. But he chose those. And what we do know is Jesus chooses those, and this guy's response is immediate, and his response is, all those I have kept. So who does this guy think he is? Now, admittedly, most of us would do pretty good on this list. But this guy, all these I have kept. I mean, not murder, got it? Don't commit adultery, okay? Um, Don't steal, okay, I'll give you that one. Don't give false testimony, don't lie. Never? Honor your father and mother? Ever? And then love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, come on. Nobody does that. And this guy goes, yep, all of them. Kept them all. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't do what I just didn't say. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You know, I'll give you you the first two, three, but four, five, six, come on. What Jesus says is this. Okay, good deal. So go home and sell all your possessions give them to the poor and then come back and follow me. And the Bible story says, and the guy walked away very, very sad because he had a lot of stuff. He was wealthy. Jesus said, go sell all your wealth, and give it to the poor, and then follow me. Now, if you hear the story, you're going, oh, wait a minute. That, that, that can't be good. The disciples were in the same place. This can't be good. Rich people can't go to heaven? And immediately I'd say, no, that's not true. Because look at the problem we have here. If if you think rich people can't go to heaven, think of what Jesus just said. Take all your stuff and sell it and give your money to the poor. What happens to the poor who just got all this money? Now they're rich. Now they're out of heaven. So you see, it doesn't work that way. So that's not the issue. It's not about that. And what's happening here is the disciples are watching this and they're just thinking, what's the issue here? Now think about this. What is the issue The issue at the heart of this is this. The lack of contentment in your life draws you away from God. Jesus says, sell all that. You don't need it. Come follow me. I'm enough. And it's that struggle of contentment that gets in the way that goes, bah, but the stuff. I got a lot of trust in the stuff. So the disciples are struggling in this moment with what Jesus had to say. And they're thinking, if that's true, the rich can't get to heaven, but then it dawns on them. This is a, this is a religious guy. So I'm thinking it begins to dawn on him. Wait a minute. If this guy can't get into heaven, I mean, with, he, he fits the perfect picture. He's got the wealth. He's got the nice car. He looks good, and get this, and he gives a lot to the church. I mean, he's pretty faithful with his stuff because he's a very religious guy. So wait a minute. So the religious can't get in either? And so I picture in my mind, they're struggling with this, and then they begin to come to their senses. In fact, Peter's the one who says it, and he kind of goes like this. Peter says, hey, wait a minute. We're worried about we can't get in because you look at this guy, but then he goes, wait a minute, but we're not this guy. We're not this guy. This guy wouldn't give up anything to follow Jesus, and Peter's statement is, we've given up everything. This guy won't give up anything. We've given everything. In fact, they say to Jesus, hey, listen, how about us? We've given everything to follow you. And then Jesus very clearly says this, anyone who sacrifices and gives up everything on my behalf, yes, you'll get eternal life. But then he ends with this little piece, which is a little uncomfortable, but he said, and remember, the first, those, a lot of people think they're first, they're going to be last, but the first will be last. Now That's the part that's a little uncomfortable. Because here's the, here's the spiritual impact of that statement. Many people who have based their entire life of contentment on their worth and all the stuff they have are going to be in for a really big surprise. A lot of people who think they're first are going to find out they're not first because they got this messed up idea of what contentment looks like. And so he gives them that story and then he goes to this next story and i get that one i get that. that's a good point And it's a good point for me to go realize you know i got my contentment it's got to be based on jesus not on my stuff so it's a good i'll get done this this next one i just don't like it all you're not gonna like it either so here's the story there's a farmer He's got a, he's got a vineyard He's got a ranch he's got a vineyard and he needs workers and so early in the morning he goes down to town where all the workers day workers hang out and he goes down there and he says listen i need workers who wants to come work me for the day and a bunch of guys agreed and said, listen, I'll, I'll pay you one denarius a day, which, by the way, would be a very good pay. I'll pay you one denarius for one day's work. And so a whole group take off and they go working with him. So they go working on the farm. About nine o'clock in the morning, he goes, you know, I think I need more workers. And so he goes back down to town and he looks at the guy standing there and he goes, hey, uh, do you guys want to come work for me today? Here's the deal. You got three quarters of a day's work. I'll give you one denarius for three quarters of a day's work. They go, sure, we'll go. So they go? And they go to work. About noon, he feels like, ah, eh, I should have more workers. So he goes and does the same thing at noon. Gives the same deal. Come work for me. I'll give you one denarius for a half day's work. Okay, we're in. Off they go. Three o'clock in the afternoon, he comes back. He goes, hey, I still got some work to be done. Who wants in? The guys go, we'll do it. One denarius for a quarter of a day's work. Okay. Off they go. Listen, it's like five o'clock, four o'clock. There's only one hour left in the day to work. And he goes back and he says, hey, what are you still standing here? Eh, I'm looking for a job. I got a job for you. you want to come work for me for an hour? I'll pay, you one, I'll pay you one denarius. Come work me for one hour. And the guy goes, Sure. Goes back and works. Now, the guys that worked all day, one denarius. That was the deal. Guy working for one hour, what's the deal? One denarius. So he goes back and they finish his hour of work. Now it's pay time. They line up for pay. And the uh, first guy, he starts with those who work the least amount of time first. So you got one hour guy comes up and he goes, Hey, here's your denarius. Job well done today. Now, the rest of the group, whether they're in line and can see this, they learn, they hear that that guy got a denarius for one hour's worth of work. And their whole thought process would be like ours would be what? Wait a minute. That's a good deal. I mean, we thought he was paying one denarius like a day. He's paying one denarius an hour. We must have misinterpreted him. He's paying one denarius an hour. I worked 12 hours. What a good day. They get in line. They get up. Here's my payment. One denarius. One denarius. Now you see the problem with the story. Doesn't that make you angry, that story? Makes me mad. Be honest. Every one of us hears the story and goes, that's not fair, right? I mean, granted, you're in church, so you know better. But if you weren't in church, you'd be saying right now, (laughs) that's not fair. Wait, 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 wait. That's not right. I mean, you got people who've been working harder than anybody. They've been working all day. They They were working in the heat of the day. It's absolutely not fair. It's wrong. So then Jesus asks them a question. In uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 15, he says to them, because they're all upset about it, he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? In fact, he told the story so we could ask that question. Are you envious because I'm generous? Let me rephrase the question because that question is actually a question about God and us and about our view of others. It's a question that God puts to us. It's a question about my attitude. That's really the issue. It's about our attitude. Are you envious that God is generous with other people and not necessarily the same generosity with you? That's the issue. Are you envious of me for what I do with what I have? Are you envious of the boss? Are you got a problem because the boss might choose to do something different, if you will? Let's be honest. This is us. You mean to tell me that you haven't ever been bitter, angry, hurt? Because you found out that someone in your workplace makes more than you do, and you work harder than they do? Or they've been work, you've been working a long time, and they come in in a short amount of time, and they're waking, working the same amount, and you happen to find that out? And they're like, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not fair. See, the problem here is they compare themselves to the other people's wages. And whenever you compare yourself to others, if they've got a better gig than you got, if they got less accountability, how come the boss doesn't make them do this, they make me do this? Whenever you down that road, you are going to lose your contentment because you've compared yourself to others. So here's the reverse question. You ever been in a position where you find out that someone at your work is making a lot less than you and they seem to be working just as hard as you? When's the last time you went in and said to your boss, take my paycheck? I refuse it. I refuse to let me to pay for that. You pay me this price. No way. Take it, cash it, give half it. From now on, I give half it to my coworker who works just as hard as I do. (laughs) Yeah, you're not doing that. You might might think you would, but we don't think that way because usually it's about us. It's about what I get. Well-known pastor Chuck Swindoll said these words years ago. Listen carefully. This isn't just about money. It's about your coworkers, about what they have to do or not, what the boss does for them or doesn't. It's about people's houses or cars, whatever it might be. He said these words. If you want to be a miserable mortal, then compare yourself to others. It will take all of the joy right out of your life. How true. If you are going to have contentment in your life, You have to deal with this tendency we have to look at others and say, I deserve that. Or it's not fair. If that's where you live, then you will not have contentment. Let me give you a third tip. Third tip along the way is contentment is not based on how much much you have or how little. Contentment is never based on the quantity of your riches or the quantity of your stuff. Contentment is being fulfilled in whatever circumstances that you're in. If I have everything or if I have nothing, contentment can still be had. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 6, maybe so, but I say this, it is better to be content with what little you have, otherwise you will always be struggling for more, and that is like chasing the wind. You know what? Some of you are chasing the wind, and some of you have been chasing the wind your whole life, and the problem is you can't catch the wind. And that's exactly what happens when we compare ourselves to other people. Learning to be content when you have little without question. Transparent here? Learning to, have, learning to be content when you have little is the easiest time in life to learn it, just so you know. Learning to be content when you have nothing is far easier than deciding to learn it later when you have all the stuff. You can say, well, once I get to this point, then I'm going to settle in and be content. Learn it when you have nothing. It's a whole lot easier. Interesting, God does tell us in his word what it, need, what it takes to be content. You do need certain things to be content, just so you know. Actually, Apostle Paul said that too. Apostle Paul said, i learned to be content with little. He didn't say with absolutely nothing, but if you look at the word he uses with the nothing, he's talking about next to nothing, if you will. Listen to these words, 1 Timothy chapter six. He actually gives us the, the, what the requirements are for us to be content. 1 Timothy six. But godliness with contentment is great gain, For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. He said you need two things in your life to be content, something to eat, and roof over your head, clothing. Those are the two things you need to be content. Epicurus said these words, for whom little is not enough. For those people who have a little and it's not enough, those people, for those people, he says, nothing is enough. Nothing will ever be enough. Let's be really, really transparent here. Here's why it's easier to learn contentment when you have nothing. Because when you have nothing, all you have is God to trust. See, it's easier when you have nothing because you don't have any of the other resources to to figure your way out. All you have is God. When you have a lot of stuff, God is a nice add-on to your life. When you got a lot of stuff, it's hard to tell if I'm content because of my stuff or content about God. Personal story, very transparent with you. I've shared some of us in our past, but I'll, I'll tell you there's a transparent piece that you'll see here towards the end of the story. I've shared with you that Diana and I, we first got married, went to our, our second church, not our first church, our, second, our first church, our total package was $13,000. That was everything. That included that, we had to pay rent on that $13,000. Uh, insurance, I'm not even sure, I don't think we had insurance. It was 13000 that was it. Went to our next church, and that bumped up to $20,000. So we went to our first church, 20000 and again, that was our whole package. And that was what we had. And then they, they gave us a cost of living raise at one point uh, to 23000 And again, that was just because the rent went up. That, it was the whole deal. Very sincerely, now we're starting a family, have a baby. We don't know where everything's going to come from. Multiple times, we would be careful, very careful. I mean, we, didn't, we weren't extravagant at the grocery store. We went to shop. We had a list. And we stayed to the list. I mean, the only thing we broke, when we first got married, we said this, we're not going to buy the most expensive stuff, we're buying the cheap stuff, with the exception of two things that we kind of, you know, um, Jif peanut butter, I got to tell you right now, (laughs) keep your skippy, (laughs) Jif's the deal, and Heinz ketchup. We're not doing anything but Heinz ketchup. So our two big extravagance moment in our lives is we had Heinz ketchup and Jif, everything else was as spartan as could be, because we didn't have hardly anything, but now I got a baby we got to feed that baby. And that became a priority. And there were multiple times where, quite honestly, it's not like we were on our knees saying, God, we're starving. But we wouldn't know if we could get to the next paycheck. And certainly, if anything happened, we'd be in trouble. And then this blue van pulled into our driveway. A couple in our church named Carl and Annabelle. He had money. He became very wealthy in millions of dollars. Wouldn't know it. He drove a blue cargo van. They pulled into the driveway, I remember see it vividly backing up to our house and she'd get out. If you could see Annabelle, she's now gone home with Jesus. She had a hairdo, she got her hair done every week, every I think Friday got her hair done. And it was probably I don't know, twelve inches at least, maybe eighteen, I don't know, what her head. And never moved. (laughs) I mean she could get her hair done on Friday, and on Thursday you'd think it hasn't moved. I would jokingly, her kids would jokingly say to her, Mom, you got to stay away from Annabelle. you got to stay away from an open flame. It's going to go up in a heartbeat. <laughs> all the stuff you have on. She'd come in the door, and they'd open the door and open the, the storm door and prop it open, and then Carl would get out. And Carl, if you knew Carl, you'd never know he was worth money. He always had kind of head down, just doing his thing. And bottom line is this guy ran a huge company, and the, the one thing he you could watch this moment, and you know he wasn't bringing all the stuff because it was his idea. It was hers. And then she would say, Carl get stuff out of the truck. Yep. And he'd get this stuff out. There's a good lesson there. Just do what they tell you to do. <laughs> but here's the deal. Now, I'm not kidding. They'd open the back of that door, boxes of baby food. I mean, every jar of different flavors of baby food you can imagine, they'd buy them by the case. Cases of diapers. Cases of desitin. We are using on our grandchildren today, desitin we've had (laughs) for 40 years. (laughs) Cases of every baby supply you could imagine, including clothes, all the stuff. And then they'd go, oh, we got something for you too. He'd bring a case of New York strip steaks. I mean a case, like 40 pounds. A case of sausages, a case of hot dogs, case of chicken, I mean cases. Quite literally the first time this happened, and it happened other time, but this first time, and we didn't call them, we didn't tell they wouldn't know. And I have said, I mean I was so we were overwhelmed. It's like this is incredible, but I don't even have a place to store this stuff. I don't have a freezer. Two hours later, the freezer showed up and filled it with food. And I gotta tell you, we sit there going, unbelievable. How would they know they didn't know? Different occasion. You know, we're newly married. We don't have any excess money. And I dressed up with a coat and tie every single day. Let me just say, in my first early years of marriage, I may have broadened a little bit. <laughs> and uh, I was still wearing the same clothes. In fact, I looked like one of those sausages sometimes, some of the pants I had to wear. <laughs> because I would ju- and, and I didn't have money to go buy suits, though I wore a coat and tie every, way to, every day at of the office. Some of you are saying, I wish you'd do that now. I'm not doing that again. Another guy in the church didn't know. Well, he probably felt by looking at me. He said, I want to take you for a ride. We went across, we lived in Detroit, went across town. Name was Leo. Took us into a place, a men's club uh, that he was an attorney. And he said, I want to suit this guy up. And I walked out with like three, four suits, sport coats, outside winter jackets, sport, I mean, pants, shoes, the whole deal. And while I was doing that, feeling very uncomfortable, his wife, Ann, took Diane out. Unbeknownst to either one of us, it was happening and said, let's go buy you some dresses and clothes. And let's just, let's just do something for you. Now, here's my point of the story. During that time, we learned contentment not based on a blue van. See, many of you will think, oh, you learned contentment because you knew the van was going to show up. No, we didn't. We didn't know that blue van was showing up. We didn't know we were going for clothes. We learned contentment because we knew that God knew that the van would show up. We learned contentment because God knew what we needed, and we knew that he knew. So we learned to be content because we knew God had this. Here's the piece. You have to interpret this the right way. I don't have many of those stories to tell anymore. You know why? Because I got lots of stuff. I don't think about if my kids are going to have enough to eat. Well, I mean, first of all, they're out of the house, and they still come back to our house to eat. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's funny. You where know, where kids are gone now. And of course, been out for a long time. And, uh, you know, I'll come home. And that's too long ago. I can't come home. I said, Diane, I said, hey, I, I got some stuff. We're going to do steaks and crab legs. She goes, why? I go, because we can. And the kids aren't home. Great. We sat down, had a great meal. We had crab left over on purpose. And the next day, our son stops by. And there's an empty container on the counter. And the crab is gone. And he goes, hey, you guys have crab all the time? <laughs> no. Keep out of my refrigerator. I, I got stuff. Now, please know, I don't have stories to tell like that. But I will tell you something. It was easier to learn contentment then. I'm sure glad we learned it then. Because that's a lesson to be learned with nothing. Because God is faithful. Um, God continues to be faithful. So even when you don't have nothing, you've got stuff, don't worry. When you're dependent on him, you still see him show up. But that was very critical to the contentment peace in our lives. I love this passage from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. First, he said, help me never to tell a lie. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I might become content without God. If I'm too poor, I might steal and thus insult God's holy name. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, just give me enough? That's it. And not just that, just give me enough to meet my needs. That's all. That's it. Let me give you a fourth tip for contentment. Tip number four, carefully choose in your life what you're going to pursue. Because right now you are pursuing something. Everyone pursues something. So be careful. What it is you pursue? First uh, Timothy chapter six verse ten: For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Pursue those things. You get to choose what you pursue. I think it's interesting in here. He gives this comparison. He says, "For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil." Some people are eager for money. One of the translations I love says this, they long for money. And then it says eager for money and have wandered from the faith. Again, other translations will say long for money and are pulled from their faith. And the result is they got all sorts of grief. I like the fact that Paul puts in here, he says, first of all, you got this eager or longing for money. He says, be very, very careful of that because that will own you this longing for more, this eagerness for more. It will own you. And then he also says, that second word, he says, pursue. You get to choose what you pursue. Um, You ever watch a dog that chases cars? Have you ever seen a dog that chases cars? You get the perfect picture of you and me in our constant pursuit of stuff. I, I, we, had, we had a dog on our street that would chase cars it would be so funny the dog was the nicest dog he'd pet the dog talk to the dog laying on the front step there and if a, dog, if a car drove by that dog was off in a heartbeat and chasing that, the, the tigers in that car it would roll around never caught, never caught up with a car he would just run chase that car until he ran out of time and space and energy and then he'd come back and of course on his way back would come another car he's right in again and he would do that to the fact that he would drop he would do it all day long every single day so I always thought to myself, so what happens if one time he catches that car? You know, what do you do with that? And here's what I can tell you. See, what he loved about it, he loved the, the hunt. They tell, they tell me when I was researching that they love the tiger. Actually, the tigers are going out, typically. It's that thing that's going around. It, it gets an impulse. So the problem is this. When they get there and it stops, they're done. Which means this. There's no meaning in it. And so if you look at the picture of that dog or, or your life... What happens is we chase after that thing till we get it, and after we got it, I gotta go keep chasing. That's the picture. So the key question is, what are you chasing after? Because you're chasing after something. I mean, make no mistake, if you're saying, nope, my goal is to do nothing, well, then you're chasing after that. If your goal is I'm gonna lay on that couch, chase away. What are you chasing after? What is it in your life, in your heart, where you go, oh, I gotta get that, I gotta get that job. I gotta get my kids into that school. I got to get a husband. I have to get a wife. I have to, we have to get children. You know, whose approval are you driven to get? I have to get their approval. What are you chasing after? Paul says this, instead of that, because it's so elusive, he says, why don't you chase after things like righteousness and godliness and faith and love and, and patience? Basically, he says this, you get to choose what you pursue, pursue things that matter. Pursue things that actually make life better for you because they change you from the inside out. Do you ever stop to reflect all the things in your life through the years that you have chased after thinking that if you got it, it would be enough? That you got it, then you'd be happy. That you got it, then you'd be satisfied. And then after you get there, you wonder, why was I chasing this? Because it did nothing for you? Let me give you a a last point. Point number five, secret number five. Contentment is thankful for what you have. It's not looking at what you don't have. A real simple understanding of contentment is to be thankful for that which you have. That's content. Romans chapter 6 verse 12 says this, that all that I am, am, praise the Lord, may I never forget the good things that he does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and he crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. He says this, never may I never forget all the good things that God has done for me. May I never forget all the things God provides for me. Now here we are in Thanksgiving week. Do you realize that sometime this week probably Thursday for the majority but do you realize that this week you are going to sit down to a meal you're going to sit down to a table that has more food on it than the majority of the world will see in a month and you're going to sit down to one meal with more food than what most hungry people in the world could even ever think about seeing in a month's time now i don't say that to make you feel guilty I mean that so sincerely. I say that to hopefully have you be thankful and to be grateful and to perhaps offer a prayer at Thanksgiving that says, Lord, as we enjoy this, if we don't do our part in feeding hungry people, how wrong are we? Now, it's Thanksgiving week, and so uh, I, when I was in church growing up, um, I'm not going to give you this challenge that like you're thinking like this, Thanksgiving, you know, just down tell what you're saying before, I got it. If you want to do that, that's great. But let's be honest, that's pretty passing. When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a hymn in church. Some of you who grew up in church remember the hymn. The hymn was called um, Count Your Blessings. Now, admittedly, as a kid, loved this hymn because in our church, very fundamental, very very kind of stoic type church, um, this was a great hymn because it was fast moving, had a nice beat to it. So we couldn't even sing it Sunday morning. You know, it was too lively for a Sunday morning service. It had to only be used on Sunday nights. Um, if you don't know the song, some of you are thinking, well, let me just read the words for you. Some of you are thinking right now, are you going to sing it? No, I am not. Are we going to sing it? No, we are not. In uh, truth of it is, it wasn't even a great hymn. Uh, though the wording of it is great advice. In fact, if one of these people think, ooh, I hope we sing it. If you really like the song, I'll give you this tip right now. Go on the internet this afternoon and type up Count Your Blessings and look for the uh, Salvation Army International Songsters. And they do that song and you will love that song and the way they'll do it. You will just love it. But listen to these words. When upon life's billows, you are tempest-tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you when you see what God has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy that you are called to bear? Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly, and you'll be singing as the days go by. When you look at others, here's the part that ties right into the sermon. When you look at others with their lands and their gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven nor your Lord on high. Money can't buy eternity. So amid the conflict, whether it's great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to the journey's end. And if you know the song, you've already been singing the chorus in your head. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what God has done. If you want to break contentment, don't forget all that God has done. And that starts with being thankful for what you have. So here's my challenge for you. No, it's not sit down at Thanksgiving and make a list. Uh, some of you remember this. I, don't, I, can't, I couldn't remember how many years ago now. Five, eight, ten? I gave a message on thankfulness, and I said, listen, would you set up on your phone an alert for giving thanks? Uh, every day on my phone at 6.17, it goes off. I was messing with the switches the other night, and we were in the, in the living room. It went off, and Diane said, what's that? And I said, it's my alarm, my Thanksgiving alarm. Only I turned it on instead of, usually it's on vibrate. So wherever I go, it vibrates 6.17. Why that time? Because I chose it. It's my, my phone. Choose yours. And every day I would challenge you, multiple days if you're really spiritual, but every day, pick a time and have that alarm go off. So no matter where you're at, at least for a moment every day, you stop and you go, I am thankful. That's the gateway to contentment. Stand, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truths. We do struggle with contentment. I walked in Best Buy the other day. Man, I struggle with contentment. And it's those moments where I've got to step back and say, nope, God, you are enough. Thank you. Thank you.